Greetings, you lovely ghouls. It's Ding Dong Darkness time, and I'm Allison Dixon. We're still in the throes of spooky season over here, and my plan this year has been to go tropey with it. Last week, I had on our friend Josh Bermont to dissect the lore and fascination we have with vampires. And now we're turning our attention to another key revenant of spooky folklore, zombies. And joining me for that discussion is another repeat visitor you all know and love. He celebrates this time of year as much as I do. And you can currently listen to him and his lovely co-host, Alice, cover some on-theme for Halloween topics over on their award-winning true crime podcast, The Prosecutors, and their sister show, Legal Briefs. So welcome back to the show, Brett. Hello, Allison. It's so great to be ding-donging with you again. (laughs) Uh, Very excited to talk about zombies, which are one of my favorite, absolute favorite horror, if you want to call it a trope, tropes. Genre. I, I love them. Genre. Yeah. I love zombies before it was cool. Still love them, even after there were too many of them. <laughs> no. You know, there's always does seem to be a tipping point of too much of a good thing sometimes. When did that start to happen for you? Was it maybe Walking Dead season 11 billion? I don't I don't recall where they're at in that right now. So, yeah, you know, I think I think by the time of Walking Dead season 11 billion, you really had. I mean, because there were The Walking Dead, there was Fear of the Walking Dead. You know, there were there were so many spinoffs. There's the new one, the Daryl Dixon, Dixon one. The Daryl Dixon one. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've seen some of the ads. I'm like, how how is he in Paris? I don't. I, <laughs> I'm sure there's an explanation for that, but you know, yeah, yeah, I don't know yeah. what it is. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, I've always liked zombies. I don't want to get mm-hmm. off. I don't want to like get ahead of ourselves. But I've always liked zombies and was really into them and was very excited in that period in the early 2000s oh yeah zombies were making their comeback because you know the the 60s and the 70s the the night of the living dead and the dawn of the dead and the day of the dead return of the living dead all of that in the in the 70s 80s that was like the first well not the first wave of zombies i'm sure we'll talk about sort of the older (laughs) style zombies the pre night of the living dead zombies anyways that was maybe the golden age of zombies we'll call it that Mm -hmm. but then like every other form of horror, it seemed like in the 90s, it kind of... The 90s was a weird time for horror. And by I weird, agree. I mean basically a dead time for horror. It didn't no, know no what it intended. was doing really till the end of the decade. I agree. It felt very aimless and goofy. And I think that goes to sort of... Another thing I'm sure we'll talk about is is the cultural connections to horror. Yes. And what horror is popular, when it's popular, and why it's popular. In the 90s was this weird sort of... I mean, I feel like historians are going to look back on it is almost like a roaring 20s time mm-hmm. between sort of, you know, the roaring 20s is between World War One and the Great Depression and World War II. The 90s was post-Cold War, which had just dominated everything for so long. Before 9-11, it was this period of like prosperity, like free money and, mm-hmm. and the dot-com bubble. And it just seemed like it was all roses and sunshine. And I feel like people just didn't really, horror was not a, thing that society was into and so everything just kind of went away and then you had 9-11 and then after that I think it's interesting after 9-11 you have this surge of horror that really starts with zombie movies it's also fascinating to correlate between the fascination with horror fiction as well as true crime to be honest and where that lines up in our period of history. Uh, we didn't have the benefit of the like heavy internet and social media use in the 90s that we have now, but it will be really interesting to see 
when we dovetail, hopefully, maybe <laughs> into another sort of 90s-esque period, briefly, if those interests will ebb back, because that seems to be historically where it goes. You know, the darker the period of history, it seems the darker our tastes are in our entertainment. But before we get off into that, because you have touched on so many things I have on my notes, and I have a glut (laughs) of notes, because what I wanted to do with all these episodes this October is just like, yeah, just come on and let's talk about these things. Let's talk about it. And so I have a bullet list here, but I could divert off of it at any point. And Brett, if you have anything that comes to mind and, you know, whatever, you just share it because it's going to be interesting. I have no doubt. So, um, but before we get into that, I, <laughs> I kind of want to lead off at the top of the first inning with a bit of a curveball. Because last week at the start of the vampire episode, I asked Josh if he had ever consumed blood. And now I must ask you a similar question, Brett. Um, What are your feelings on the whole cannibalism thing? Like, let's say you're stranded in a snowy mountain pass with a group of unfortunate tagalongs. And there is a line to the survival soup pot containing the meat of a guy named Steve. Where would you be standing in that line in terms of rake and file? Oh, I'd be right at the front. I mean, I, <laughs> yes. I mean, look, I, I don't, I don't, I have no interest in murdering people or anything like that. Right, but right. my my level of hesitation in a survival situation to go ahead and eat Steve. Yeah, sorry, Steve. Steve's getting eaten. I mean, it wouldn't <laughs> it wouldn't even be a question, and I and I get it. I mean, it's one of the oldest taboos, right? Mm-hmm. That that we don't eat people, yeah, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I, I can say I've never drank blood. So if I was your vampire person, I would have to say that. And I've never eaten people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> say that well, as well. You know, that's good that we know of. Um, hey, you never know. Sometimes that's true. And some of these meat products we're eating. But that's a good point. But you know, in, in all in all seriousness, I, I that did occur to me because so much of what we'll be talking about in terms of zombie lore, zombie folklore, and mythology, it you know will involve flesh eating. You know, not always though. It didn't start out that way, and and that's. That's what I find really interesting. And un- to be completely honest, and Brett knows this because I knew I wanted to have you on. And I was just like, well, let's just zombies. Okay. And I just threw it out there. Want to come on the show and talk about zombies? And you're like, yeah, sure. And then I started thinking like, oh, damn, what am I going to, I need to really dive into this topic uh, for real. Because my first exposure to zombies as a kid was Return of the Living Dead. That was my first real zombie movie. It was like 1986. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. These are all kind of a big blur for me, but yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, and and the funny thing is, is I, this is how dumb I was on this topic until I started doing the research for this show. I had always just assumed that was part of the Romero canon. I never Mm. knew that it was not. And there's a whole interesting relationship. It's sort of like the... It kind of is in a weird way. But yeah, because I guess Romero had a relationship with the guy who wrote Night of the Living Dead, and then they kind of parted ways, but they kind of split the the whole thing like you can develop a Night of the Living Dead movie or a Living Dead movie, this one guy Russo, I think his last name was, and then Romero could just develop any sequels he wanted to. That was like part right. of their deal. So um, Russo goes and makes Return of the Living Dead, which 
is it, it was the first zombie film to introduce eating of brains, brains. specifically. Yes, exactly. Again, today I learned. So shocking to me. And that's just only one tiny bit because the history of zombies and the lore behind it is very deep and kind of bleak and very fascinating. Yeah, when the zombie movies started taking over, there were there were a lot of film critics and horror critics who would say things like, you know, zombies are the lowest common denominator. These this is like mm-hmm. zombies zombie movies, they're so simplistic and all sorts of stuff. It's like, no, zombie movies are actually the most complex of all horror movies, in my my opinion, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um because because I I truly think that zombie movies bring together number one, they're as old as time. Number two, they bring together basically every every form of horror and everything that you're afraid of is all wrapped up in one package in zombie movies. And so while we often think of them as sort of brainless, brain dead, kind of like the zombies are, in reality, you can touch on so many different things. And you see that with Romero and you see that with the way he used his movies to reflect sort of certain societal things that are going on. Yes, but even, you know, Return of the Living Dead is so much more fun. Yes. It has like, a, it's like a punk, you know, mentality. Yeah. And it's got, <laughs> it's, you know, tongue firmly planted in cheek, right? Yes. And I can very much enjoy both of them, both the sort of like Dawn of the Dead, both the original and the remake, which I think are both tremendous movies. You talk about like bleak and dark and serious. I mean, those movies and Day of the Living Dead is even worse <laughs> as oh, far as bringing you down, right? Very much so. Very much. And then much. you have Return of the Living Dead where it's 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 funny. And, yeah. and particularly its sequels are funny too. And it's interesting that you can do so much with this one thing. For me, my experience, my introduction to zombies was thriller. Everything yeah. for me goes back to thriller. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I really had thought about zombies is that video. Yeah, And that video, I loved it so much as a kid and watched it so many times. So it's not a surprise that I'm a huge fan of of all that kind of stuff. I think the, the whole concept of zombies is so interesting. And in, I would say particularly the Western psyche, which I think we'll, we'll be doing some comparing and contrasting a little bit when I talk about some of the history involved. But um, I, I find it really fascinating that um, they can encompass both our internal anxieties, you know, the things that we personally fear, which is chief among them death. And that was touched on a bit in the vampire episode, both the ignorance of what happens to people after they die in terms of their bodies, what happens to their bodies, combined with the sort of more existential fear of death. And, you know, so you get that with zombies and the fear of the corpse, you know, that plays into it a little bit. But then it also can encompass our broader fears of what we're living in at the time and studying the these eras from its very beginnings up until now is fascinating to see how much it reflects sort of our modern sensibilities uh you know for instance you know when during the Night of the Living Dead released in 1968 at the height of the Civil War movement at the height of counterculture Vietnam you know it was a very very turbulent time and as such it was a very very turbulent film that looked like a newsreel that you would see every night on TV. The movie reflected that without Romero going so over the top with it. And I know I'm kind of like getting 
uh, a little ahead of myself on this too, because I haven't even talked about the history, but I find it fascinating that you have that in 1968. And then we have something very, very recent, like The Last of Us that uh, premiered on HBO. Beautiful series, beautiful game that it's based on, actually. Um, but that sem- seems to reflect more of our in- fears about the environment, the climate, bioterror. A lot of zombies sort of reflect that fear because that was big in the 80s and 90s, those fears pandemics, viruses, things like that. Well, you know, Alice, Allison, <laughs> we just survived a zombie apocalypse today. I mean, I, I yeah, don't know we if you, <laughs> well, you know, were aware that there was going the we did the emergency alert thing and that was going to I don't I guess it didn't work out. I mean, I, I had my, you know, my guns and my food ready and, you know, my my house was boarded up. I was ready for the siege and yet yeah. no zombies arose. But even in that, you see, you see that sort of that idea coming back. This notion, and I think, I think you're right. I think zombies can encompass so many different things. You know, death. You mentioned the thing about vampires, though. You know, vampires stay young and youthful forever, right? Like there's right. there's like a positive to being a vampire mm-hmm. in some ways. You can maintain your your person. Right. If you're a vampire, I mean, you can be yourself, you can live forever. So there's like a, you know, an attractive side, you know, vampires get sexy in some movies, right? Yes. I mean, the original vampires are much closer to zombies, but yeah. oh, we yeah. have taken them and turned them into these like, you know, suave, sexy creatures or whatever. But zombies are very much, it's death, it's decay, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the fact, the decaying body, the body that's falling apart, it's the loss of control over yourself. You know, this notion that you, if you're bitten, you are going to lose yourself and become a threat to everyone around you and everyone you love. You're going to be driven to do this thing, the ultimate taboo we talked about with cannibalism. And that's another thing that gets added into it. And it's not just, you know, if we find the vampire and slay him, we'll have saved the town or whatever. It's this sort of blight death. It's almost inevitable, right? Right. This just flood of zombies. And you can you can delay them. You can hold them off, but you're never going to win in the end. It's all they're always going to overcome you at some point. And just all those sort of different aspects coming together. And you can see disease, pandemic. I mean, we've just mm-hmm. been in the middle of a pandemic, right? I mean, that's right. that's essentially what it is, whether it's your traditional zombie virus or something like you see. In The Last of Us, I mean, just this this thing that you can't control and you can't stop taking over your body. Mm-hmm. There's no cure. There's no escape. There's no one to help you. And the survivors, in many ways, are the real victims. The ones who, who succumb to the zombies in the first like few minutes or become zombies or whatever. You know, they don't live to see sort of the horrors that that follow and... As the zombies are kind of returning to a very primal form where they're driven by nothing more than hunger, yeah, you have society collapsing too and returning to a very primal form in a lot of these shows. And sort of, and, and you know, The Walking Dead's a good example. The zombies are just kind of the background in The Walking Dead. Right. It's the, it's the fear of the living thing, right? Like the living are the ones you have to worry about. They're the ones who are really dangerous. And I think that's also sort of an interesting side part where that becomes another thing you have to think about. That is an interesting thread that runs through a lot of uh, sort of creature horror. I noticed um, anything involving a, a creature, you know, Frankenstein or, or, you know, the mummy or things like that. It's like, is it the, the creature becomes sort of something you 
find is like a byproduct of our own messed up stuff. You know, it's, it's a, like, our, who's the scarier creature in the end? I mean, that's the classic what you see in Frankenstein, you know. But yeah, The Walking Dead, I think, and shows like it, the ones that show not so much the act of downfall, because it usually does happen so quickly that, um, and that that's one thing I always question, you know, the pace of these things, how that would really unfold. I think The Stand makes, uh, by Stephen King, I think holds a, a pretty strong template for what it might look like if, you know, things collapse that fast. And so when you when I think about a zombie apocalypse, though, and if it is a virus that does jump between people that quickly, um, yeah, I guess it could happen pretty like within a week, would you say? I mean, does that what what do you think about like the, the speed of the end and, you know, and whether or not they could do better with that. One problem is it's, if you really only had a virus that was transmitted by bites, it actually would spread very slowly and would be easily containable. Right. And we have a virus that spreads through bites and, and makes you crazy and attack other people. It's called rabies. Yes. And rabies has never like taken over the world. Right. Because it you kills can, its you host. Actually, <laughs> yeah, it kills its host and it, 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 it travels pretty slow and you can usually avoid getting bitten by somebody. You know, most most people I think in a situation where getting bit is the problem. Probably wouldn't dress like most of the people in zombie movies. You know, right. the, the girls are always wearing like cropped, cut off, you know, <laughs> shorts with like short sleeves and stuff. And it's like somebody just put on a jacket. Right. People would just wear a jacket. It would make a big difference. Armor up a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Like, even if you don't have armor, just cover up your sleeves and that yeah. would at least help. Right. Um, <laughs> now, I think one that I think is a little bit more maybe realistic is 28 days later. Yes. Which some people want to say it's not a zombie movie because they're not dead. Well, you know, that's because you don't have a good understanding of zombie movies and don't realize that whether, you know, that's, that is a recent addition that you're yeah. a zombie because you're dead as opposed to just having lost your control over yourself. Yeah. It's a small evolution of the same concept. Exactly. I mean, bites are part of it, but just the fluid, you know, just like it's, it's more like an Ebola type thing. Yeah. Which also doesn't spread as quickly. If you had an airborne virus, I mean, that's, but the problem with the airborne virus is for your dramatic, you know, if you're making a movie or a book, it can't be airborne because, as we all know, like with COVID, I mean, COVID's taught us all that, that yeah. there's no real good way to protect yourself against it. So it's really hard to set up the dramatic tension when you've got eight survivors in a mall and the only way that they can anything can happen to them is if they either go out or the zombies come in and the sort of rising tension of eventually the zombies going to get in or eventually they're going to have to go out. Whereas if it spreads through the air, it's just like one day they wake up and they're zombies, right? So it's right. Like not, as, not as effective. So I think that's why in fiction you never see that. But I think in real life, it's always airborne viruses that are going to actually turn into a pandemic. I doubt you would ever see a full-blown global pandemic of Ebola. that was not airborne. <laughs> exactly, of Ebola. It's a terrifying disease, no doubt. And, and nobody should ever hope to ever catch it but you're right or anything that is airborne it but so deadly that it just kills people too quickly sort of like the i think the original sars uh virus was like a 10 percent, or it was one of the other it was mers i think it was there's so many but yeah so it has to have that perfect balance but i agree with you i i think one thing i really liked about the last of us is that one um starts with a fungus infection and it spreads the cordyceps uh fungus that 
actually is a real fungus that invades the host's brain and controls it. Does it with uh, to ants, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and there's pictures if you just searched cordyceps, uh, a particular type of cordyceps, rather. Um, and so it, it adapts that. It, it, it takes sort of like a, well, it wouldn't be able to survive above a certain temperature level. Well, playing off that fear of like the rising temperatures of the planet. Oh, no, cordyceps can suddenly jump into human brains. Oh, no. And then it comes with all of the the sort of scary parts, the pluses and the minuses of this, because now that you're involving a fungus, you have spores. And those kind of spread everywhere. And in the video game, you wear masks in spore zones, and you have to account for where you are. The show just kind of doesn't acknowledge it at all because they they realize that the way that they have to film this, they can't have that be a factor. So you have to kind of just forgive that aspect of it. But it's a fascinating device. The other one I've seen is where, I mean, Walking Dead kind of does this where everybody has it. And so everyone who dies, no matter how they die, is going to come back as a zombie. And so you have much more. A lot of people who die every year, right? I mean, every day. Right. All you have to do is die. All you have to do is die. That's genuinely the scariest one, I think. Because it lives in you sort of like something that's activated by your very death. (laughs) Yeah, and you think about (laughs) how much worse dying in your sleep would be then. Because Mm -hmm. if you die in your sleep, you're going to become a zombie. So, like, you know, just think about sort of the precautions you would have to take as like a family right like you'd have right. to everybody would sleep in a different room and lock themselves in and prove they didn't turn into a zombie overnight like stuff like that yeah you know, I, I always think that's sort of an interesting twist on it you know i'm glad you brought that up because i had forgotten that that was the way the walking dead was set up that's right i watched a few seasons of the walking dead i haven't gone all the way through it i've played the games they're more like um, action-based like novels more than visual novels that you play through uh, that are really, really interesting and add to the story. So if, uh, shout out to anybody who has played those games. They're really good. Um, but I want to jump a little back in time here because, you know, we're talking about pop culture uh, in terms of how it uses the zombie. And I find it interesting to sort of to go further back, you know, to where this stuff came from. And there's usually, you know, for vampires, I mean, there there are stories that go back thousands of years to the beginning of time, something that resembles something vampire-esque, like a demon that sucks your blood, um, something immortal like that. But what we know as the modern day vampire, the Bella Lugosi vampire, the Lestat and Louis vampire, you know, that goes... M- you know, more back to Eastern Europe in the 16, 1700s, you know, era. And with zombies, I mean, we could do an entire episode just talking about this. So I'm really going to kind of cliffs notes it. Its roots go more back to Western Africa and the involvement with the slave trade. And so at the start of the slave trade in Haiti, that was where, you know, the French were colonizing uh, that island. And uh, 30% of the entire slave trade existed in Haiti. So there was a it was a heavily enslaved population there. And the people that were enslaved, they developed a religion called Vodou, which is sounds a lot like voodoo, but is not. Um, those are very separate things, but they're related. And you know, that all kind of comes back. But they derived this religion from the experiences that they had on Haiti. And according to their beliefs, the body is essentially just a hunk of flesh that is animated by two types of spirit, essentially. And again, I am 
I'm dumbing this down a whole lot, maybe too much. So yell at me if you must. But one of those spirits is the one that contains your personality, your thoughts, your dreams. Uh, and that's T. Bonange is what that's called. And I might be butchering that as well. And then the second one controls your body's ability to breathe, walk and perform motor functions. Uh, and that's called uh, gross banange. And after death, it is believed that it takes time for this, these spirits in your soul to untangle themselves from your flesh and move on. And it is at that point that you're vulnerable to having those parts of your spirit stolen and placed into a bottle. And anybody who comes into possession of such a thing can control a deceased corpse. And that's basically where the original zombie comes in. And linguistically, it all uh, derives from the languages and stuff of that uh, region. But who is most likely to become a zombie, according to this folklore? Um, well, that's where suicide kind of comes into the picture. Because in order to discourage slaves from ending their own lives to escape slavery, they were told it would mean that their souls would become property in the afterlife as well. They wouldn't have that freedom. It was more just to discourage it. Um, and so it's interesting uh, that the zombie that can result from this uh, is not the zombie at all that you are accustomed to seeing in, you know, modern culture, the way that we portray it as these, you know, decaying, rotting bodies. They're more just like automatons that are very blank faced and they are subservient to a master, which is very different from the zombies that are completely uh, autonomous in modern usage. So, you know, they have the aspect of losing control of yourself. Right. Rather than, than being controlled by, you know, the insatiable hunger for brains. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, or a virus or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it, and it's it's almost more like just keep, keep going back to vampires, because I think I think I feel like vampires and sort of the early notion of zombies were, were much closer and they've diverged a little bit. Yes. But you think back to sort of Dracula and how Dracula's. Uh, the guy who was in the in the asylum, who's named Renfield. Yes, mm -hmm. you know, Renfield is kind of a zombie. You know this this kind of zombie where he is under the control of Dracula. Dracula has taken away his his ability to think for himself, or has convinced right. him that he is like you know he has to do what his master bids, right? And I, and I think it's a similar thing. And and what's interesting about it is you know, there are actual examples of people who believed they were zombies. Yes. Who believed, who, who were absolutely convinced that they were under the control of another person. And you see that. I don't know if you ever read or watched The Serpent and the Rainbow. I was about to. It was in my notes, actually. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, that that talks about that. Is it uh, Wade? David Wade, I think his name is. I, I think that's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting book, for sure. And it, and it's interesting the way belief can manifest, mm -hmm. right? I mean, presumably, I don't want to make any assumptions here, but presumably someone who becomes a zombie, you know, in real life, their soul isn't actually in a bottle somewhere. Right. But they, be they believe it so much that they can be convinced that they are under the control of this this person. And you you can read accounts of people who've gone through this. Who, mm. you know, whose family thought they died because 
there's all I mean this is this is a fascinating the whole the use of like the uh, the, 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 the powders drug. yeah yeah there's yeah. like two different powders uh, that he said yeah one would like make you par- like as a paralytic exactly. and the other one gives you the appearance of death and so then right. yeah it's the same thing that's in like a blowfish yes yes it's that same thing and, and and yeah they've got it in a powder form and so everybody would think these people were dead mm-hmm. because they give it to them they appear to be dead their vitals are so low and then when they would show back up, everyone in the community said, you're a zombie. Like, you, yeah. you know, they, and so this sort of self reinforcing thing is everybody's telling you that you have no control over yourself. And so you don't. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating to tie that to, and how it all ties back to concepts of, you know, being owned uh, and not having your own sense of, of personhood. Um, and, and, and how it becomes sort of an allegory for, for a lot of that and how, you know, there's so many things as you were talking that were like popping into my brain. Like, first of all, uh, let's go back to Romero here. When he made Night of the Living Dead, the word zombie was not in use at all. And, and in fact, his biographer stated that, Romero very likely knew nothing about Haitian zombie lore. And he was coming from a completely different place. He said he was inspired by Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. Fantastic book. Uh, and, a, and a pretty decent movie. And usually considered a vampire. Absolutely. And, no. you know, and it has sort of elements, zombie-ish elements to it, because isn't that like a virus? Like, doesn't it treat vampirism as a virus? Yeah, because he, because in the, the character in the book had been bitten by a vampire bat. That's right. A, and, and so was immune. And that's why when it happens, he doesn't turn into a vampire. Yeah. And much like in the movie, I Am Legend, during the day, he's going out basically and hunting vampires and then coming back to his house at night. And, yeah. and boarding it up because that's when the vampires come out, obviously. So I can absolutely see, especially in Night of the Living Dead, because the the ghouls, as he called them, you know, they behave how we might see zombies uh, in the more stereotypical sense these days. They're very slow moving. They are eating flesh. Um, they're, you know, very blank faced. They kind of have that shamble going on. They kind of have like... A, a different vibe when when the movie came out and people saw it they were calling them zombies and that's where george kind of came in and was like well all right i'll start using zombies because that's by the time he wrote dawn of the dead that was already well in use uh dawn of the dead came out 10 years roughly 10 years later it took a while for for the sequel to come out um so that gave culture a lot of time to you know take that football and run with it but I, I do find it interesting, too, though, that this whole thing of how zombies even entered American consciousness really comes down to World War One, because that's when the U.S. briefly occupied Haiti. And so soldiers and, and people were staying there and coming back with stories of the Vodou religion uh, as it was being practiced. They had their own experiences with this whole, like, living dead thing, which, again, you know, is often just a way of expressing people who have these dead blank expressions because they're being worked to death. And this is the, the conditions. They were still enslaved at this point. But it wasn't until after the war that, you know, they started coming over here. And you find sort of the more melding of the American indigenous cultures with the Haitian uh, voodoo cultures into voodoo, uh, which is 
what people use now it used to be very much a, a vulgar, a vulgar term used by people who feared it and didn't understand it. But then it was eventually adopted. And so the practitioners today, you know, have reclaimed the word. So it has a very complex history. Um, that's really interesting. But one thing that I wanted to mention was in the 1920s, an author uh, named William Seabrook wrote a travelogue called The Magic Island, in which he described Haitian zombies in a very, and that's in air quotes, Haitian zombies, in a very exaggerated way, referring to uh, the workers he encountered there. And so whenever that book sold in 1929, it was huge. It was very sensationalistic. And that's when you start seeing sort of the injection of quote unquote black magic into the storytelling culture. And then we have the release of the first feature length zombie movie, White Zombie in 1932, starring uh, Bella Lugosi. And it's kind of just gone from there in terms of how we understand uh, zombies. But there was a whole cultural thing at that point where zombies were being used to express, you know, white fears of blacks. And, you know, this whole culture that was going on in the 1930s during Jim Crow and all this stuff, too. So honestly, if you really want to get a sense of, of culture, I honestly cannot think of a better vehicle. Uh, if you're looking to sign and not redirect history, and you want a good metaphor, you want some good, like, uh, just a sense of what's going on in the world. God, watch the zombie movies of the era. And, and it's fascinating. It really is. And I honestly, again, did not know a lot of this until recently. And I'm like, why did I sleep on this? Because this is incredible. If you love history, you've got to love zombies, man. You know, what's fascinating about White Zombie, so you had the 30s, you know, the 20s and 30s as far as race relations, really the teen, teen 20s and 30s. Race relations in the United States hit a real nadir. Mm -hmm. Because you, you know, you had a situation where black communities were starting to to thrive. They were making money. Um, people were sort of for rising up in society. And at the same time, you see a lot of white communities that maybe weren't. And they the jealousy that was happening there and, and the fear of, you know, a societal upheaval where all of a sudden, because the thing, you know, it's. That's so funny that when you think about the politics of of race and how, you know, you had all these white politicians and wealthy white people who it was very important for them that racial structures remain the way they were. Because what you never wanted was for the poor white people mm -hmm. to start rising up. But as long as they, they weren't at the bottom, right, there was always somebody below them. Mm -hmm. It was kind of you could maintain that order. And that was one reason that all of this sort of racial stuff was so valuable to so many politicians in the South and in other places at that time. And you see, and so in the 30s, obviously, you're going to have the Great Depression and all that's happening. And White Zombie comes out, I think it's 1932, 1931, 32. Yeah, 32, the peak of the Great Depression, like the worst part. Or Nadir. And you see, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you see the reflection of something in the Caribbean islands. Mm -hmm. So unlike the United States, where there was slavery, but there was also a large sort of population, a lot of the Caribbean islands were just slave states. Yes. You had large numbers of slaves and very few slave owners. 
And the fear there of slave revolts was just incredible. And so this, this fear of the slaves and what they were doing and sort of was something that you can see how that would so easily transition over into the United States. And you have these people coming back and they've experienced that. And then they're coming into their hometowns and they're sort of now they're afraid, right? Right. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, White Zombie is such an interesting movie if you watch it through that lens, because you're basically seeing on film the fear because the whole idea is this, you know, as typical sort of racial trope, white woman being zombified by this voodoo master. Right. Yeah. And that's the fear. And so as we will see, as we continue to look at the zombie thing, the sort of fears are just poured into this vessel. And now when you watch it, you may not recognize that. But I think when people watched it on the screen in 1932, they certainly got that message. I mean, they understood exactly what they were watching. Oh, absolutely. And and that echoes so much, too, with what happened with Night of the Living Dead. And forewarning people, I'm going to spoil the hell out of this movie. So, you know, just just buckle up. Fans of George Romero know that he, you know, he was always a mirror for what was going on at the time. Well, the fascinating aspects of uh, Night of the Living Dead being that you know, you have the main character, the main male character, Ben, who happens to be the only black character in the entire movie. And, you know, he ends up being the sort of resourceful one, the hero, the the guy who's got his shit together. And, you know, they're uh, facing off these zombies and, and they're all in this house. And so there's all these like these tensions boiling around that, too. And what happens to him at the end? He gets his head blown off by some good old boys that thought he was a zombie. More for the fire. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And at that time, again, 1968, most of the people listening to this probably have some sense of that, uh, that time, even if you didn't live it. But so many people being assassinated at that time, there are riots going on, you know, over the war, over the civil rights movement, over, you know, desegregation, all this stuff. And it's reflecting the the, the zombies that are eating flesh, A, he, he added that trope in there. And then you have them that they're breaking into your homes. They are coming for your place of safety. And it reflects, again, that fear, because you're seeing people storming the streets and and all this chaos happening. And again, George Romero tried to distance himself a little bit, because whenever he had the only black character in his movie being killed at the end of the movie, everybody who was watching it knew. They knew what was being said here. But George didn't want to own that. And I think part of the reason for that is probably that, well, he wanted to make sure the movie got into as many people's, you know, that as many people went to see it as possible. But ever since then, the movie's always had a charge to it. It took him a very long time to finally admit he might have been influenced a little bit by things that were going on. And it's such a good example of how you can use horror and science fiction is another one. Yes, to create a great yarn. I mean, look, if, if you didn't know, if you were an alien who landed on this planet after a post-apocalyptic like nuclear war and everybody's dead and you watch Not Living Dead, you'd be like, oh, it's a great movie. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> yeah. yarn, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't, if you don't know any of that and you yeah. don't realize any of that, you can enjoy it just as it is, but you're able to, without putting it in your face and without making it obvious, I would think most people who see it now still understand that. Yeah. But I bet it's not the same. You know, it's not right. 
it doesn't have as much of an impact as if you went to see it in the theaters in 1968 during some of this stuff that was going on, just like White Zombie. You can know intellectually that that's what people were experiencing when they saw it, but you're not right. you're not going to appreciate it in the same same way. And it, and and he was and continued throughout his life. Basically, every everyone he made. I mean, some of them people think are better than others, but nevertheless, all of them were able to encapsulate some sort of societal issue that he saw as, you know, important, whether it's, you know, consumerism or the threat of nuclear war or in his later, his latter movies like social media. Oh yeah. You know, that, that sort of aspect that he, he was able to include. And he was able to always do that through the medium of flesh eating bodies that have returned from the grave. You said it so well. But I love, too, how it reflects not just the issues, but the mood. Like, you know, Night of the Living Dead captured that kind of, like I said, newsreel kind of fear feeling. But then you get to 1978. There's a whole lot that's happened (laughs) in that decade. And that's when we have Dawn of the Dead. And there's kind of an over-the-top, there's a, a, like, goofiness to it. There's a bit of a, a slight, like, flavor of joyousness in that movie uh, that you would not have at all in Night of the Living Dead. And I noticed that too when I actually just rewatched the Zack Snyder remake, the 2004 remake the other night, because I just thought, oh, let's watch a zombie movie. I haven't watched it since it came out, to be honest with you. And James Gunn was a writer uh, for that. And my God, did that come through? Uh, if it, you know anybody's familiar with James Gunn's work, I was like, oh well. As soon as my husband mentioned that, he's like, oh man, James Gunn was a writer on this. I'm like, this completely explains this movie. <laughs> like when they're in the elevator after like some like a fight, and the all, you're out of, all out of love, like music is playing, and the <laughs> and one guy's like, like, I love that song. I love this song. <laughs> I love that movie. I mean, but it's great. I, it's it's a, it is a fantastic. It's very different from the mm-hmm. original, but I mean, I think those two movies are just they both to me they both stand on their own. I mean, I love them. Oh yeah, both. they're they're wonderful. And you know, Day of the Dead was interesting too because when that one came out in '85, had that heavy science military you know vibe we're in this bunker and it kind of had that thing that that was popular in a lot of movies back then when you think about aliens and terminator and things like that you kind of see this like almost this heavy militarized dystopian future you know feel that it had going on with it and but that's where this takes a turn um because i had forgotten about this because that day of the dead is one that i have not uh, scene and I oh, God I can't even remember. Uh, but that one has Bub, who Bub. is the intelligent zombie. Um, and I'm curious, what do you think about that particular trope of the genre? The sort of attempt to make the zombie somewhat sentient or intelligent or self aware. I sometimes feel like it's like trying to jar like two ends of a magnet together that are normally repelling each other. Um, So it could go either way. Well, I mean, okay. So I think there's a lot of different ways to look at this. I think there is an argument that from the very beginning, the zombies were always the good guys that in, in Romero's sort of thing, we society is failing. It's collapsing. We need a change. We need a new thing. And that's the zombies. So if you think about, let's start with Night of the Living Dead. So Night of the Living Dead, you know, the zombies very much 
I think, I mean, um, people might disagree, but I think they represent societal change. They, they represent societal unrest. Absolutely. You know, and you talk about the good old boys. The good old boys should be the good guys, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are coming together to put all that down, to stop all that. You know, they, they have banded together. They're, they've, they, and if you watch the movie, it seems like at the end that they win, right? Yes. Like they come together and they put all this down. They stop all this from happening. And maybe it's because of what happens with men. You're never rooting for them. Right. You know, when they show up, they're not cheers in theater, right? But nevertheless, they do it. But apparently they're not successful because then you have Day of the Dead or Dawn of the Dead. And by the time you get to Dawn of the Dead, you know, the good old boys represent sort of civilization, society, the state, structure, organized organization. By the time you get to Dawn of the Dead, all that's sort of falling apart. Like everyone is presented as basically in it for themselves. There's not a whole lot of nobody's coming to help you. Right. Like there's no sense in Dawn of the Dead that the good old boys are going to show up and save the day. Yes. It's more like you're all in it for yourself. By the time you get to Day of the Dead, that has reached its logical conclusion where basically you have the military industrial complex is all that's left and sort of it's totalitarianism. And you're actively by that point rooting for the zombies to break in. And Bub has become your hero. Then if you get to land of the dead. Yes. By that point, the zombies are a hundred percent the good guys. Oh yeah, they're you know, the working class, right? Yeah, exactly. Rising up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Overthrow. They're like, you know, they're it wasn't these, a Dennis and, Hopper and a skyscraper. <laughs> yeah, and there's like a scene at the end where the good guy humans and the zombies kind of like hat tip each other, like when they're yeah. like, "Hey, you, good job." And then yeah. they're like the good guy humans go off wherever they go, and the zombies continue to eat everybody, right? <laughs> it was and it's great. just. <laughs> and so I think that the intelligent zombie is the natural evolution of this sort of like, you know, the the uprising of the masses is, is always chaos. Every revolution is chaos, right? You know, everybody loves revolution, but there are very few revolutions that don't end in mass bloodshed, including ours. Everybody else had pointed ours as if it didn't. No, it just took a little longer, right? right. Like we had the revolution. Everything was fine for like... 60 years, and then we killed half the country, right? right. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, yeah. <laughs> it's always going to happen. You're always going to have, yeah, four score and whatever years ago. You're always going to have that. And I feel like that's what that's what the zombies are. They're like revolutionaries. And yes, there's been a lot of bloodshed, but it's been necessary. And then by the time he gets to his later movies, they, they have sort of like coalesced around building a better world right, through zombieism or whatever. And so I think that is the natural progression and why you see that with Bub. And a lot of people didn't like it. And a lot of people, I remember Land of the Dead being criticized because the zombies use so many tools. And people would be like, yeah, but have you not seen Day of the Dead? Like, this was coming. This was always coming. So That's just such a great point that you bridge those together like that. Because... I loved seeing sort of the evolution of the zombie in and after 2004, because what other movie came out that year? I have to say probably my second favorite zombie movie, depending on what mood I'm in. Love Um, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. We'll have that discussion at some point. No. Shaun of the Dead. Ah, Shaun of the Dead, yeah. Also in 2004, Edgar Wright's amazing British comedy satire, very 
um, very much takes so many different liberties and things with the various lores. And what makes it interesting, though, and, you know, we talk about The Walking Dead where it uses the zombies as sort of the backdrop. It's sort of the same with Shaun of the Dead because we're seeing a zombie apocalypse sort of happening, happening at least initially, almost as an afterthought to this sort of late bloomer's coming of age as a man, you know, because he he just kind of, you know, Sean's starting out his life. He's just kind of, he works at a electronics store. He's, you know, just kind of trudging through life. He's just not going anywhere. One and might say he's a zombie. Yes, exactly. And it just he's sort a corporate of zombie <laughs> <laughs> and trudging to work in the morning, doing his daily routine and all these things are happening. You know, if you listen to sort of the TVs and what they're saying, or you look at the backgrounds of what the extras are doing. And, you know, it's a it's a movie that absolutely rewards your attention to detail, which is why I've seen it so many times, because every time I watch it, I notice something that I missed before. But that also changed sort of the energy around the zombie because, hey, you have a comedy um, that's a true comedy. I mean, there's some harrowing, sad moments in the movie. Edgar Wright has a very keen way of sort of balancing between utterly hilarious and utterly horrifying in the same scene sometimes. But it ends on a happy note with, uh, you know, his best friend played by Nick Frost, who had been turned uh, throughout the movie. He's got him kind of holed up in his shed in the backyard. He's playing, teaching him how to play video games. (laughs) So, you know, from that point, you start seeing sort of these other movies and shows like, you know, movie uh, Warm Bodies with Nicholas Holt uh, that kind of presents a zombie love interest kind of a situation. And you have shows like iZombie that came around a little while later or the Santa Clarita Diet, which was a really kind of a, I, I hesitate to call that a zombie show, but it's the Drew Barrymore, Timothy Oliphant show that was canceled um, a little early, but she just starts craving human flesh. And it's, again, it's a comedy. It's a little bit of a satire going on, but it's a show that sort of plays with that idea of how do we incorporate this trope of zombieism into a suburban setting um, and make it work on a comedic level. So, I mean, zombies nowadays really feel like what we're doing with them is we're, we are making them a little more nuanced. I think it's pretty cool because I think if anything, socially, we're beginning to reexamine sort of old roles and norms and conventions and sort of explore whether maligning an entire subgroup is a good or even interesting idea anymore. Usually, I guess what happens whenever you have oversaturation, you, you've been in the horror community. Yeah. When I was writing horror, I can remember this was around 2011 where I was really into it. Yeah. I can remember submission guidelines. No zombies was always. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There were just, there were too many. I mean, there's just everybody wanted to write about zombies and it was all basically the same. And so, you know, they just didn't want to hear it anymore. And so then people who really want to do it, they do, they start to think of different ways to use it. And it starts to, you know, and then you do have these really sort of interesting different takes on it. Did you ever see Raw? No, I don't think I have. It's a French movie. Okay. It's a French movie about a, a girl who goes to veterinary school, and she's a vegan. But at some point, and I, it's a French, man. they kind of strange. <laughs> For some reason, I guess when you get, when they, in veterinary school, like one of the things 
one of the like hazings was they made you eat raw meat. And so for the first time she ate raw meat and it like awakened in her this sort of ravenous desire for meat of all kinds, including. And so she's she's not a zombie. I mean, she's live, but she's got that sort of overwhelming. And it's a great movie. You should check it out sometime. It's got some nice twist to it. But I think that's what you see. You know, we, we for a very long time have been in a if you're going to do zombies, it has to be different. Now, you see some people. Like Train to Busan, South Korean movie. I was just going to mention that one. Yeah, <laughs> is a very is a much more traditional sort of zombie thing, right? Right. Um, and you saw I don't, when did I don't know when World War Z came out. The late aughts, early tens. Yeah, and that book was great, and it was mm-hmm. and it was. I mean, it's basically like a spoken word history of the an oral history of the zombie apocalypse. I think is how it's described. And so the book is all sort of like different people, their perspectives as it happened and what happened and all this other stuff. And then the movie, obviously with Brad Pitt, but that was sort of at the height of, of this. And then you saw the, the I am legend remake with Will Smith. I mean, so you had on the one hand, a lot of the traditional type stuff, but then you have all these people going different ways with it. And it'll be interesting to see if that continues or if it'll all sort of kind of converge back. And at yeah. some point, we'll get back to more just sort of like Walking Dead type stuff. I mean, Walking Dead's been pretty consistent in its traditional zombie approach, at least yes. as far as I know. I haven't, I've not watched the latest seasons because I, I lost the thread on that at some point, I think, with most people. But I think it will always be with us. I think it always has been with us. Mm-hmm. I think, as you said, sort of our traditional view of zombies, I think, grew out of this sort of this Haitian thing, but I think there was also, there was always, it was always there, you know, Mm -hmm. like there are from the Epic of Gilgamesh, there are bodies being reanimated in the Bible. There's like the Valley of Bones stuff. There's (laughs) Lazarus. There's the, the Revenant. There's, there's Mm -hmm. ideas of this. You know, I always think you talked about World War One and sort of this idea of sort of mass zombies. I always think back to one of your episodes mm. where you talked about the, the there's this Russian fortress and the Germans are trying to take it and they're using gas. Yes, the attack and, of the dead. Yeah, exactly. And the gas is like basically it's not turning you into a zombie, but you basically are the living dead. And you're convincing the army that you are the living dead. That was the thing about that. It was so psychological because the people that were watching this were thinking these people had risen up from the dead. And imagine that being your last moment. Exactly. And there were rumors. I mean, the, the World War One. one of the things that I feel like nobody ever talked about, I wrote a short story about this one time, but I feel like nobody ever talked about, or you don't hear this much, but back then there were these rumors and stories that soldiers would tell around the fire at night about creatures that lived in no man's land Ooh. that fed on the dead, right? And were like, you know, and if you were wounded out there and you couldn't get back to the line at night when, you know, the guns were silent, like these creatures would come upon you and devour you and all sort of stuff. And I always wondered, how did that play into sort of this this developing story that you got as you went along? You know, similar to the way vampire lore was picked up and spread and, and adopted by other cultures that absolutely... Soldiers always seem to be the ultimate vector of cultural or otherwise like change, like spreading around or even honestly, um, in the times of the plagues, you know, that that also, you know, moving forces uh, throughout the world. That's how it spread. So um, I imagine picking up those stories, picking up that folklore or literally bringing people back from there 
with you and starting a family and passing down those traditions here and then them picking up sort of almost like Lent, uh, all the other trappings of, of our culture here. And it's really just kind of a beautiful thing because human beings, it's, it's sort of how we all share our experiences is through this type of folklore and type of storytelling or the religions that we write about and our scriptures and things. It, it, it's all very human and, and seeing the commonalities, for instance, between you know, countries that build pyramids on completely different sides of the planet. We don't have to get into who built them or what aliens built them or anything like that. But just again, that that common human experience is happening in multiple pl- places of the world at the same time uh, that they never knew about each other is incredible. And at some point, those things come together. And we realize, oh, my God, we have so much in common. This is great. <laughs> this is crazy. But I have a small lightning round for you, Brett. Okay. I kind of want to wrap it up here, um, but I, okay. I have just a few questions because these are questions that must be wait. asked. Okay. Number one, what is your zombie apocalypse weapon of choice? Zombie apocalypse weapon of choice. If you're going firearm, what kind? Or are you going melee? And what is your melee weapon? You got like your baseball bat with the barbed wire wrapped around it. You got a katana or some kind of sword bladed weapon. What 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 is it? Well, I think the zombie survival guide said that your best bet is the Shaolin staff, which apparently is, really? uh, is a very versatile, <laughs> yeah, weapon um, that Shaolin monks could use. Nice. And it's both like it's both short, and easily controllable, and not easily breakable. You know, the problem with firearms, of course, is Noise. when you use them, you're going to attract more zombies. But I think people underestimate how hard it is to use a non-firearm to kill someone, <laughs> even yeah. if they're already dead. You know, when you have to like pierce their their skull or whatever. I think katana, unless you know how to use it, it's probably not going to be great. Yeah. You know, I think some sort of spear is probably your best bet. I mean, humanity's been using spears for a really long time. Mm-hmm. You know, a short spear, not a long one, but a short spear, one that's like long enough that you have a little bit of distance. But one that can can pierce the cranial cavity and do what you need to do. It's silent. I mean, honestly, it's kind of zombies are kind of like those survival games like Dead Space, where your best bet is to avoid contact at all times. Yes, to like avoid you, detection. Yeah. Yes, avoid detection and avoid contact. And so, really, you need a weapon that is going to be silent because you want that to be your only contact. And you want to be able to use it as quickly as possible. I mean, baseball bats are probably pretty good. I just don't know. I think we we underestimate how hard it would be to actually to actually to, to kill a zombie. I think video games give us an unrealistic uh, expectation as to our effectiveness in using melee weapons, unless you are already a very strong and fit person and you're not and you need to have the stamina and you're not going to be able to face down a horde with a melee weapon alone you're gonna have a hard time so maybe like I mean, one or this, two the crossbow crossbows are much easier to use than regular bows if anybody's mm-hmm. ever fired a crossbow they are basically like a gun i mean you can retrieve your ammo usually you can yeah. retrieve your ammo they're silent you still have the problem of it's difficult to hit a small target, which a head is, yes, when something is moving. But with a crossbow, you're going to be closer than maybe a firearm. Obviously, reloading takes a moment. So it's not like a... I mean, I think basically what you want is you want a handgun on you mm-hmm. 
for worst case. So like you got your crossbow and you miss and the thing's right on top of you and you got to use your gun, then you got to use your gun. I want, this is what I want. I'm going to borrow it from another movie and it's doesn't exist in life, but it's one of the coolest weapons of all time ever on film is the suppressed shotgun from No Country for Old Men that Anton Chigurh used. And it was basically a shotgun with a big metal barrel screwed to the end of it. And the way it sounded... But did they sound like that? Because I thought I heard people say that they don't I've sound... I've fired a suppressed shotgun before, and they're, they're yeah. still pretty loud. Like, you don't have to wear... People totally underestimate how loud firearms are. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you shoot a gun, you need to be wearing some sort of ear protection. And if you don't, your ears are going to hurt. Yeah. You can fire a suppressed shotgun without ear protection, and it won't bother you. You would definitely hear it, though. <laughs> You're still going to hear it. That's why I love the No Country one, because it's like he's... It sounds almost like a... Like, almost like something that's... I don't know if you're like at tennis practice and the thing that throws the ball, it almost yeah. sounds like that. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, if I could guarantee that, cause I, I'm a shotgun gal and my, if I, if I had my druthers, I would always just have a shotgun um, in any kind of survival situation, just because it's great for close uh, contact if you're a bad shot, which I am. But of course, sound is an issue. So when I play my video games, like I, I have my left for dead, which is, you know, I still play that on occasion. Um, it's a classic. You load it up and you just go start killing zombies in different settings. And it actually feels like the people who made Left 4 Dead for Valve were watching the 2004 uh, Dawn of the Dead remake. Because honestly, I'm watching Dawn of the Dead the other night and I'm like, this is so Left 4 Dead. Like the shooting of the propane tanks and having them explode and just so many other little things that they put into that game. And I always had the combo of the shotgun and katana. But again, the katana was made to seem much easier to use in a video game. Like you're just slicing through these zombies like butter uh, with that blade. And that's... In real life, not going to happen. It might happen at first if it's really sharp, but it's going to get dull. So yeah, that's the problem. I, I think you're on to something with a spear, and I think that if you must have a ballistic weapon, then a crossbow is definitely a great compromise. Um, and you know, things that keep the noise down. Another thing that we do um, every year when we have a chance is uh, Chris, who hosts on here sometimes with me, and. Couple of our other mutuals, we get together and play uh, Zombie Side, which is this huge board game. And you're trying to get out of a scenario, you're with a group, and they all have different skills and different roles and different weapons. And anytime you fire one of those weapons or break a door to get in somewhere, you have to drop a noise token down. Mm-hmm. And if a noise, if you collect three noise tokens in the same zone, then that you got to roll for the zombie who's going to come at you. And it could be a big tank scary zombie or a runner that's like hard Mm. to hit or yeah so it's it's really cool to like think about like the different classes of zombies because a lot of shows do that too you have your big your big baddies and then you have your little like kind of like worker bee zombies that are easy to kill that you can dispatch and although the thing about killing zombies and before i move on to the next question return of the living dead was so terrifying to me as a kid because you could shoot a zombie in the head and it didn't kill him and that was like terrifying to me <laughs> like, yeah i don't yeah. remember how you did kill him and did you like have to burn the whole body or something right. I, can't, yeah. I can't even I, really remember it pretty sure it was something like you had to do a destruction of the whole body because i remember like incinerator scenes or something yeah. it's been a long time since i've seen it too but i remember being like Oh, we can't just shoot him in the head now. Oh, damn. That's going to make it harder. <laughs> All right. Next question. 
any place you could hole up and survive the apocalypse long term, where would you go? You know, everybody has that dream. They're driving past a certain store, maybe a Mm. certain house in the neighborhood. Maybe it's your own house. But where do you go, like, for the ultimate? I'm going to, like, hunker down and live in here for a while. For the ultimate. I mean, the problem with most of the ultimate locations is they'd be absolutely overrun. I mean, obviously, if I could go to Bucky's or (laughs) Costco and just have it to myself. (laughs) Costco is so on my list. I'm like, you could fortify Costco. Oh, yeah. Like, if you could could somehow get to Costco before anybody else realized. I remember we were when the COVID happened. Mm -hmm. So, we knew COVID was coming. So, we had like a little bit. But there was no COVID in Alabama yet. But we had said, we got to go to Costco and get a bunch of stuff because it's going to come. And when it does, they're going to lose their minds. They're going to shut everything down. And so we had taken my daughter for her like checkup and Mm -hmm. we were at the doctor's office. And while we were at the doctor's office, we had the first case of COVID. And so we're like, okay, we're going to Costco. And when we got to Costco, it was like, you know, if there had been COVID in Costco, everybody would have had it because there were like a billion people there. And I I remember saying to my wife, this is exactly what a zombie apocalypse would look like. Everybody would be here. And so you'd all end up dead because like the zombies would show up and they would just, you know, eat you. So, but if I could somehow get to Costco or Bucky's, I mean, Bucky's would be pretty amazing. That yeah. would be a good place to be if you could if you could fortify it, like you said. I mean, the mall is always nice, you know. The mall, the mall for the people in Dawn of the Dead worked out pretty well. If I actually had to do it, though, I think what you really need is you really need some sort of community you can go to because it's going to be hard to survive on your own. If I could make it to my parents' house where they live. Everybody who lives around me are, are my relatives, and mm-hmm. they're all like party, like country people who know how to do everything and are heavily armed. So if you, if I could make it yeah. to them, I feel like we could both, you know, hunt or fish or farm for all the food we needed and hold off any any sort of zombie encroachment. And because it's in the middle of nowhere, I don't think you would have like such a massive horde that you couldn't hold them off. So. I actually think that would be my goal would be to get back to the holler, as it were. Yes. <laughs> and see if we could fortify it and survive. I certainly wouldn't want to try and do it where I live now. I think that would probably be a problem. I think you're absolutely right about, you know, for short term solution, you know, get what you can in town. But I think almost every zombie story is has, you know, pretty well established that those places will a be overrun very quickly and they'll be looted out very quickly and they'll be more dangerous because in some ways you're i mean it depends on the city right because some of them you can maybe hole up in but you're going to run out of resource at some point and so if you don't get out of the urban environment and into a place that has a stream or has some life you know things you can hunt, then, you know, that you can actually live off the land, that's going to be your long term solution or find somebody, you know, who's a prepper who's already ready for this. stuff. Yeah, I mean, is the government going to reassert? Is it going to be like Shaun of the Dead, where the government fairly quickly is able to reassert control and and reestablish society? Or is it going to be more like Dawn of the Dead, where we're just all out of luck and you better have a place that you can be long term I mean, you know in the original they at least had a helicopter i would like to say that i think we have a interesting 
you know, recent history has painted what that might be like. But I don't know, man. I mean, it's changing so quickly. Everything is so dynamic. And so on the one hand, we haven't changed much at all as a species. I think we've always been a little uh, difficult at handling these kinds of things. There's always going to be very competing personalities. There's always going to be fights and infights and greed and, and panic and all those things. But yeah, I think you just have to get away from where the most people are, uh, you know, at, at some point. But then, you know, every story then will show how that can be a drawback as well. I feel like you're always going to be moving. I think it's always going to be a very nomadic thing for quite a while. I think that part of zombie stories, like especially the more post-apocalyptic zombie stories, definitely seems to nail that sort of you got to find a tribe and you got to set settle down somewhere and you got to make it work and then you got to be ready to move at a moment's notice kind of thing. Uh, no, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, all right. Switching tracks here a little bit. What is your zombie apocalypse vehicle of choice? Mm. Because mm. that the vehicle is an important thing. You think about post-apocalyptic movies and just zombie movies in general. You got an array. So what are you, are you more of like a tank man or are you more of like a, a biker man or somewhere in between? Or are you going you on know, that's, foot? <laughs> that's such Why? a great question. Yeah. Because arguably, you know, one problem was for zombies is you wonder if they could actually, if you had a few tanks, it'd be pretty easy to take out most of the zombies, right? Because they can't get in. Right. But a tank is a death trap, right? Because if you're in a tank, it's not fast. I can imagine, I mean, I don't, I've never been a tanker myself. I have friends who, who who drove tanks, but I can imagine if you're rolling through several thousand zombies, eventually like the gears would get all clogged up with like blood and guts and bones and stuff. And you wouldn't be able to go anymore. And then there's a problem, right? Cause you're surrounded by zombies. <laughs> yes. The problem, the problem with your motorcycle is it's loud once again. Right. I think Rick had a pretty good idea with the horse, except once he got into Atlanta, the horse got surrounded and eaten. Yes. So that's a problem. I think honestly, probably your best vehicle is probably a bicycle because it's silent and it it helps you move and you can sort of take it, you can hide it, you can take it off road if you need to. But I think you're you're gonna have to just depend on your feet at some point. Like I said, it was nice that those guys when they were in the mall and in uh, Dawn of the Dead had a hel- helicopter, but I don't think I'm gonna be taking off any helicopters anytime soon. <laughs> and you know, obviously, once you land, that's a problem. But I think I think your best bet. Going back to my general theory that if in your the if you're in the zombie apocalypse, your goal should be to never actually engage with a zombie. Yes. Right. It's kind of like, you know, if you're if you were in a, if you're in World War II, your goal should be to always be the cook, right? <laughs> like or <laughs> to always to never you never want to be the guy on the boat that's landing on the beaches, right? Like you you want to somehow avoid that. And I feel like it's the same thing with the zombie apocalypse. You don't want to be the guy who's killed the most zombies because that means you're most likely to get killed. You want to be the guy who somehow managed to never see a zombie. So I'm going with bicycle because it's it's quiet and versatile. And, you know, until your your tire goes flat will be pretty effective for you. I like that. And I and I like the bike concept in general for the same reasons that you do. I think it helps you to be more nimble. I mean, especially if you are traversing through areas with clogged freeways and and things where you can't get through traffic and um 
and also being able to get away quickly. When I played the game uh, Day's End, I was I was pretty obsessed with that one for a while. And that's uh, uh, the protagonist is a biker and there's a lot of biker kind of culture in it. Um, and you have to sort of level up your bike and make it uh, and suppress the noise and stuff in it to make it less likely to attract. Um, and I like the idea that I could go off road with it. Um, but you're right. Noise is always going to be a factor with that. We could split the difference, you know, modern day bikes, a lot of them are e-bikes. Uh, so, you know, point. you can get yeah, yourself one of those, point. get a solar charger for it. I mean, come on. That's, if you're, that's smart. Yeah. If you're going to like hole up, maybe, so, maybe a second choice if you, for a short term solution is to get your ass to a Lowe's or a Home Depot or something like that. So you can like get like the gear and the batteries, maybe craft yourself some interesting melee weapons from garden tools or mm. <laughs> whatever so there's a lot of a lot of death machines that can come out of a home depot but finally finally i need your desert island zombie movies tv shows the ones that you want to keep with you they may you're always like oh, i'm in the mood for zombies tonight i'm putting this on what you watching well i mean look we talked about it a lot i just i loved the dawn of the dead remake so much i, mm-hmm. I have watched that movie when it came out that was one of those movies I used to, before I was married and had kids, I would get obsessed with a movie and watch it every day. And and that was a movie I would watch every day. I loved nice. that movie so much. I thought it was terrifying, equal parts, terrifying, funny, r- realistic in some ways. Like I could imagine a lot of the stuff, not everything they did, but a lot of the stuff they did, I could imagine people doing, you know, it wasn't as sort of ridiculous as some of them. So that would be high on my list. Um, throw you for a loop here. Zombie movie that I don't think we think we don't often think of as a zombie movie. Pet Cemetery. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you brought that up. You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pet Cemetery is, 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 and would be an amazing book to carry with me mm-hmm. on the desert island. And let's see. And look, I mean, look, I thought World War Z was a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, it's, it's worth reading. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's very much a product, and you'll see it when you read it. And sort of the post nine eleven era, there's a lot of stuff that's connected to that, and sort of what all was going on then. Which once again goes back to the fact that zombie zombie stuff is often tied into our sort of cultural zeitgeist. But those yeah. are, those are the ones I'll say. You know what's interesting is we see the sort of uh, you know talk developing of. Um, aliens and and oh ufos or whatever we're calling them now uh is it uh, uip or i i don't even know yeah yeah. Uh, yeah aerial yeah. phenomenon yeah aerial phenomenon that's yeah. right that's right and you know if that becomes an actual part of again i mean there was a bit of that in the 50s right at the ufos mm-hmm. and everything but it seems like it's re-entering the zeitgeist for us so that might be <laughs> we're gonna get some space zombies uh at any point i can't think of a space zombie movie life but, force uh, oh gee, i mean I've, i had to count on you to come up with one <laughs> yeah i mean they're they're more they're kind of more like space vampires oh, okay but again since yeah we keep sort of tying together <laughs> space zombies and and space and or zombies and vampires and a life force has has some of that aspect as well and i think there, there are definitely some like zombie like things that go on in life <laughs> well i can't believe this much time has passed already and i mean there's so much more we could talk about but it's like an hour 20 and ah, dang brett 
We did another one. We did ghosts last year. We did zombies this year. Who knows yeah. what will be next year, but it was awesome. It was so it awesome. It was awesome. And thank you so much for having <laughs> me and, and allowing me to discuss this with you. You know, I love I love talking all things horror and uh, Halloween and October. It's my favorite time of year, and this has been awesome. And I can't wait till next year when we get together to talk about some other topic. I know. I know. We kind of bandied about mummies at some point, so maybe that'll – we'll we'll pencil Kinda that like one zombies, in. Kind of like it. Yeah, we're – you know. We'll we'll have to see, won't we? We'll pull back the layers, <laughs> quite literally. There you go. Um, <laughs> Unwrap a new topic. <laughs> now, I want you all, I know many of you listening to this already know the prosecutors. We have a lot of the same fans. So, um, But if you are listening and you haven't listened to the prosecutors yet, get over to your podcast app and cue them up. And their October episodes are... In particular, fantastic. They always try to stay within theme, as I said before. Um, and you're covering a f- what? What are a couple of the cases you're covering this October, Brett? What's some appetite? Yeah. So you know, we this year we're very much sort of trying to cover stories that are connected to Halloween in some way. This last week we released a, an episode about a, the 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 classic check your candy urban Uh legend and and where that arises from in an instance in which a child was was actually killed because of poison candy but it's not quite what you think there's a twist there Mm -hmm. and then next week i mean by the time this comes out this will be a public one as well but we're talking about one of the murders that inspired the movie the candy man oh man you haven't seen that a fantastic movie which I mean, I can't imagine that you haven't seen it. Oh, but, of course. Yeah. Oh, right. those are two of the things we're talking about. And we've got a few horrific stories to go that are also all connected to Halloween. And then we're going to end up with a a classic sort of, I don't even know exactly what to call it, paranormal cryptozoology story. I don't know. That's that, That'll be our Halloween release, but I'm looking forward to Oh, I'm looking forward to, to it yet, as so well. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be great. And... For me, you know, this is now the second week you were uh, you were part of here. I have uh, a couple other topics that are coming up for the remainder of the month. Uh, one of them uh, might just have you howling. That is all I have for this week. If you have any questions or anything you want to contribute to the topic, feel free to give me a shout at ddarknesstime at gmail.com. If you're on Apple, love what you're hearing, drop a review. It really helps the show. You can find me also on the Facebook page and over on Twitter here and there still. And I think that's all I got for now. We'll see you next week, guys. This episode was produced by yours truly, Allison Dixon, and wouldn't be possible without the amazing contributions of countless friends, family, and supporters. Big shouts also go out to Nathaniel Dixon for all the show art, as well as Spencer Morlock and Ken Dixon for the music. I'll be back with something new next week. In the meantime, you know what to do. Be good, you little ding-dongs.